good morning. Some years ago, I travelled to Florence, and in that wonderful place there, I went to the market and bought myself a leather jacket, and uh, came back home to Australia and attended one of our university gatherings. It was a party, and it was just from our cohort and our fraternity, and so we were there, and I put my leather jacket on the back of the seat and continued on for the party for the evening. When came time to leave, I went back to the chair where I'd placed my Florentine leather jacket and found that it was gone. Instinctively, I ran around the room to see if it had been misplaced or a chair had been moved. Couldn't find it anywhere, so I ran to the front door of the facility where we were having the the party and I looked out and about 50 metres away from me, my leather jacket was walking away in another man's body, (laughs) on another man's body. I called out and ran up to him and then the two of us got the fright of our lives. As I looked at him and he turned around and looked at me, we realized that we knew each other. He was a guy from the year below me and uh, he kind of knew who I was and I knew who he was. Well, his face went ashen and he said these words to me. He said, Troy, if I hadn't known that it was you, I wouldn't have taken your jacket. I looked equally back at him in time and I said, mate, that's not the point. It doesn't matter whose jacket it is or isn't, you shouldn't have taken the jacket. You see, opportunism and greed runs deep. He didn't need that jacket. It was just there at the time and he liked the look of it. I love that clip from, well... It's a confronting one, the big short, because the whole idea about it is that at the behind the global financial crisis was this caustic, corrupt banking practices that when it sort of started to trickle out and the domino effect happened from the subprime market, the, the effect that rippled out from America and through the whole economy, well, it became to be known as the global financial crisis of 2007. Thousands of people lost their jobs, people's savings and were lost overnight and people's homes were vacated. The effect was enormous. You see, that's what an economy kind of does, if you like. Where there's opportunity, it also breeds greed. I'm reminded of the words of the Father of economics, if you like, Adam Smith, 18th century philosopher, Scottish man, who wrote this about economies, at least open ones, as he was speaking to. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the banker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. If I could put it another way, the way in which our free open markets work is based upon this, competition. You see, in a competitive world, prices are supposed to go down and the delivery and and if you like, the quality of product is supposed to go up. But the only problem in that kind of ideology, that kind of thinking is that there are winners and that there are losers. And when there's opportunistic activity fueled by self-interest or let's push it a little bit further greed then there's no end to the kind of distress and evil that people might experience and face 
Why am I talking about this and why am I talking about this in a church space and why am I talking about Jesus? Because over the next number of weeks leading up to and over Easter, I want to talk about the Jesus way. And I've subtitled it, Living Within the Economy of God. You see, we don't deal so much in kingdoms anymore. If you want to know what the essential message is of Jesus, it's quite clear. And he says it in these terms. I must tell the good news of God's kingdom. Jesus came to talk about another kingdom. He came to talk about his father's kingdom coming to earth just as it is in heaven. But we don't deal in kingdoms. There's a united kingdom. Well, I still think it existed up to last evening. And then there was a, a, a kingdom of Fifeshire if you go to Scotland. But we don't deal so much in kingdoms, but we deal with economies all the time. Some people have said, if you miss the kingdom or the economy of God, if you miss you miss Jesus entirely. Let me say that again. If you miss the kingdom, you miss Jesus. So over the coming weeks, what I'd like to do is take you on a journey where we can understand something about what does it mean to enter into and live inside of the economy of God amongst the economies of this world. Or to put it another way, how do you remain and enter into the kingdom of God amongst all of the kingdoms of this earth. If you asked a Jewish person who lived at the time of Jesus, what are some of their expectations about God and life and their unique calling in the world? They'd probably tell you, share one of the three, these three following convictions with you. The first conviction they would hold is that they would believe that at the, the, bottom, of the bottom line, that at the end of the day, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. They would have this idea and this conviction about their God, Yahweh, who is the creator and maker of the universe and owns it all. He is, if you like, the boss, the king, king, the CEO of the world. The second conviction they would hold is simply this. As it said in some of the prophets, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covered the sea. A Jewish person who was longing for the arrival of God here on earth would look forward to a day in which his presence, his very glory would fill this earth and all humanity would see it and wrongs would be put to right and things that were out of joint would be put back into joint and and peace would reign, and that God would do that in history and time, and that it was yet to come. The third conviction they would hold is simply this, is that as a Jewish person who has been part of the, the family of Abraham, that they hold, they hold a unique place. God made promises, covenant promises to Abraham, that through them, someone would come and help put God's order to bring it to bear here on earth. And so, with that picture, I'd like to take you on a journey. Because if you asked a Jewish person, had God become king? They would simply say, look around. No. The world is still filled with the same greed opportunism, and it's rife. God has not become king. So join with me as we talk about the Jesus way. If you have a Bible there with you and you'd like to join with me, I'm going to charter through Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. You can follow it with me on your iOS device as well. 
You see, Luke was a physician, he was a medical person, and he began to write about the story and the life of Jesus. And he put it in his own constructive narrative. And in chapter 3, this is where the, if you like, the explosion of ideas begins when he writes these words. It was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip was tetrarch of Iturea and Traconidus. And Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. Try saying that fast, i tell you what. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. What's John doing? He's giving you an historical moment and he's telling you who the power players of the Roman Empire are. If you know anything about the Romans, and particularly about the Caesars, there's two words that would describe them. Excessive and brutal. Around the birth of Jesus, when King Herod the Great died... There was an uprising, Judas, the name of a bandit, who overtook and conquered one of the cities in Galilee by the name of Sepphoris, just seven miles to the eye, northwest of Nazareth, where Jesus was to grow. He took it over. The Romans didn't like that. So they signaled for Varus, the general in Syria, to come down with his legion. Varus came down destroyed the city and crucified 2,000 men on the road as a warning to any other would-be bandits and messiahs and those who opposed Rome. You see, Rome kept the peace, the Pax Roma, through sheer brutality. You do this to us and we'll do this to you. Power. Let's press on a little bit. Pontius Pilate, the one who mixed blood of the Judeans and the Galileans, it says, and was to behead someone that we're going to read about today, John the Baptist. And then, of course, there was Herod the Tetrarch. Well, his father, Herod the Great, it was said of him that he preferred it was better to be his host than his huios, that is, his son than his It was better to be his pig than his son. So how Herod, the son, Tetrarch, actually made it was slightly miraculous. But he survived as his father would, if you like, remove certain family members who were a threat to his throne. In fact, it was Herod the Great who realized that when he was about to die, no one would mourn his death. So he made a declaration that on the moment of his death, they should gather up all the nobles of the area, take them to the Hippodrome and execute them. So people would at least cry on his death day. (laughs) Such was the brutality of this environment. And then, of course, there was the high priests. The priesthood had been switched, chopped and changed, all kinds of manner of times. Who would actually confide with, who would actually collaborate with the Romans, usually sat in power in the high priesthood, so that was corrupted as well. And with this, in this environment, this kind of tinderbox, it was like there was a fervency that something would happen, that God would come and rescue them from their enormous plight. There were zealots who wanted to take up armed might and overthrow Rome. <laughs> there was those who were part of isolating communities like Qumran who just wanted to get away from it all. And then, of course, there was just the everyday average man and woman, maybe like ourselves, who wanted to scratch out a living. And it's within this tinderbox environment that Luke has just set out. He talks about the cousin of Jesus by the name of John 
expressing the words of Isaiah the prophet by saying this. A voice shouting in the wilderness, get ready a path for the Lord, for God. Make the road straight for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill shall be flattened. The twisted paths will be straightened out. The rough roads smoothed off. And all that lives will see God's rescue. You could imagine these words being announced in the wilderness where God had rescued and led his people from out of Egypt and had returned them from Babylon captivity. And now hearing these words would have been explosive. God is on the move, John was declaring. And when God is on the move, you better get ready. You better, if you like, lower the mountains, lift up the valleys, make a straight path because there is no stopping him. His arms are open wide and he welcomes all to come and you can be part of that as well. Well, it goes on and says this, at that time, the word of God came to John just like the prophets, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went through all the region of the Jordan announcing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people began to get ready. You know how this works. Has anyone ever turned up to your place unannounced? They knock at the door. And the first thing that goes through your mind is probably, if you're like anything like me, is, oh my goodness, <laughs> we haven't cleaned up. <laughs> in fact, we never clean up. <laughs> Just come back in an hour's time. Actually, that's not true. We do clean up. But (laughs) you know what I mean, don't you? The first time someone's coming, if they're a special guest, if they're invited, you actually just want to get the place ready, don't you? Well, Bron and I, I remember a number of years ago, we're over in the United States and, and we'd organized with another couple to have dinner together. They're an American couple. We were just new into the area and they wanted to say hi to us. And so we prepared some food. They prepared some food. And at the designated time, we went to their place. We stood outside their house and we rang the doorbell. No answer. We're holding the food. We rang the doorbell again. No answer. So this is strange. I thought we'd organized all of this. So I took my phone and I called them. No answer. We turned and we're about to leave when sheepishly the door opened and the guy stepped out. We said, oh, I'm sorry. I thought maybe we've got the time wrong. He goes, no, 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 you haven't got the time wrong. So um, my wife and I, we've just had an argument <laughs> and we've been upstairs going, you go tell them. No, you go tell them. You go, no, you go tell them. <laughs> so I've come to tell you, <laughs> we're not prepared. <laughs> Can you come back another time? John is going through the wilderness and he's calling out the tops of his voice. God is on the move and you better get prepared. He says, what you need to do with his movement that's coming, his kingdom that's arriving, his economy that's bearing um, and, and coming here to dwell here on earth is that you better repent. That word metanoia, which means you might have a, a radical change of heart, a radical change of mind. Because if you don't have a transformation on the inside, you won't get what he's on about. You won't get what he's doing. And you just continue on with doing exactly the things that you are. But get ready. And so if you like to cleanse them, to roll out the red carpet, to say, I'm preparing and getting my house in order, he plunged them in the water in order to, if you like, declare that they want to be part of the movement of God. And then John does something that no would-be preacher, no would-be, if you like, one who wants to influence friends and win enemies would do. 
the very next thing is he looks out from the water to the banks of the river and he says this to the people that are watching and participating or just observing. You brood of vipers. (laughs) He doesn't mince words. He says, you snakes. (laughs) He said... Who told you to escape from the coming anger when God is going to put the world to rights? Who told you and warned you to get your act together? He goes, you better prove your repentance. You better prove your transformation by bearing the proper fruit. He says, don't you think that just because Abraham is your father, you're right with God? Don't just think that God couldn't actually make followers of him from the stones themselves unless it's transformed on the inside and shown on the outside. It means nothing. And as the crowd hears this, they respond to John. They called out, well, what should we do? What does this transformation, this repentance, this metanoia look like? And he says this, profound words. Anyone who has two cloaks, replied John, should give one to someone who hasn't got one. The same applies for anyone who has plenty of food. You wonder why we buy into generosity around here? It's because it's not something we have to do. It's something that is transformed within us. You see, the mathematics of heaven looks something like this. If you have two and you see someone who has none... You should keep one and give away the other. Let me explain that again because I know this is very difficult mathematics. And I know some of you didn't do all that well in maths at school, right? Two plus zero equals one plus one. If you have two bits of food and you see someone who has none... If there's the love of God in you at all for his humanity, then you will keep one so that you're not hungry yourself and give the other one. In fact, sometimes people might give even more. John said that's what it looks like to have a real transformation of your heart and mind. And then some other people in the crowd, they called out, these are the toll collectors, the one who, when people are passing through regions, would collect taxes, if you like, for the the regional sort of kingdoms. Some toll collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? And he says this, don't collect more than what is laid down. In other words, don't use your authority and power to misappropriate things for yourself. Interest. And then the third group comes along, some soldiers who are governing. They have spears and shields and they can wield great deal of might and power and authority. They say, what should we do? And he says these words, no extortion and no blackmail and be content with your wages. You see, if it doesn't transfer to the outside, it hasn't really happened on the inside. You see, we live in a world in which it's quite possible for you to believe something in your mind, but not behave it with your hands. In the ancient world, those two things were like oxymorons. If you didn't behave it, you hadn't believed it. And if you believed it, you behaved it. Such is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. 
and the mathematics of God. You see, all too often, our world is driven by power and greed. And John was declaring here that day, that moment, that when God's kingdom comes to bear here on earth, justice would reign supreme. An acquisition for self-interest would be challenged. And all authorities and powers on earth and in the heavens, in the seen world and the unseen world, would be laid bare before the kingdom and the economy of God. And so he would say, come and join it. Come and join it. You see, you can't buy your way into it. You can't bully your way into it. You can't brashfully force your way into it. You can only receive it because it's of God. And it's only something he can do when he transforms the hearts and the minds of human beings such that their hands are transformed as well. That's why John finishes off with these words. I must, Jesus said, tell the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And John says, I'm baptizing you with water. But someone is coming who is stronger than I am. And I don't deserve to untie the sandal straps he has. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, he's saying, you can't do it yourself. You see, you might hear the words of John and hear the words he says to the tax collectors or the soldiers or the people just ask, what should we do? And you think, oh, yeah, yeah, I know God, I get him. So if I just put a little bit of money in the plate, if I just start sharing my shirts, then we're all squared up with God and I can get on with my life as usual. No. You see, when his kingdom comes to bear, it calls all authorities into question, including your own. Implicit in these words is the question, who's your king? Who's your king? Who's the king of your life? And to which kingdom are you building? Some years ago, I was on an airplane flight to East Timor. We'd been funding schooling, the building of schools. I remember sitting next to a guy who was an aid worker. He'd been in all the hot spots all around the world. <laughs> I turned to him and I said, what motivates you to go to all the hot spots to help those impoverished? He thought for a moment and he said this to me. He said, you know what? I think good matters. And I wanted to whisper back to him, well done. I don't think you're far from the kingdom of heaven at all. Because I think that would be a Jesus thing. The only problem is, I know what's in myself. The desire for self-interest. And that needs to be burnt up with fire. And I need a reorganization of my mind, a metanoia, a transformation that only God's spirit can do and that's what it does when it comes into a person's life the kingdom of heaven 
band's going to come up in a moment. You're going to listen to a song. But I want to ask you the question this morning as we start off this series, The Jesus Way, Living Within the Economy of God, because it's begging for an answer. Who's your king? And what kingdom are you going to be building towards? Hands up here if you're a parent and you've sent off your young ones to school this week, maybe for the first time. I've seen a lot of Facebooking mums out there and dads saying some goodbyes. It's okay, you get to pick them up at the end. <laughs> but I remember the playground. Do you remember the playground? You send them off and you realize there's all kinds of kingdoms in the playground, aren't there? (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's the one up on top of the, and he's looking down and he's the pirate or something. And there's the ones who are playing over there and they've got their own little kingdom who's in and who's out. And you worry, don't you? And then you realize not all much changes from the playground sometimes because we've got our own kingdoms sometimes we can be our own kings and queens so let me ask you how's your kingdom been this week your economy have you been listening to the voice of God in it or have you been building your own empire Because when his kingdom comes, transforms our mind and thinking, so we walk to a different tune. I wonder what things you need to lay down, what things you need to pick up in light of the coming king. What's he speaking to you about today? You're going to hear a song that's called, I'm Coming Back to the Father. I can't help but hear the words of John. His kingdom's coming. Make way. Make it straight. And I wonder what he wants you to make straight in your life. For him. To reign. So as you hear the words of this song, some of you might just want to get yourselves right with God. Do some confessing and asking. Maybe just soak up his goodness and his love. But then there's a piece of paper that you're sitting on. Could you take that for me now? Because in two weeks' time, three weeks' time, we're going to be doing an Engage Sunday. You see, on these Engages, we don't do it just because we think it's doing a nice thing for people. We do it because we have a heart that's changing and shifting towards God, and we want to express His kingdom here on earth. So this year, what we want to do is shift the onus from being, we organize all the things to you being open to the voice of God to respond on that day. So maybe after you've spent some time clearing a pathway for God in the coming weeks, 
You might want to take this sheet of paper, look on the reverse side and then the front and simply pray, God, what would you have me do? Who would you have me serve? And how can I demonstrate your kingdom here on earth on the 23rd? Be careful if you pray it because he might nudge something inside of you and ask you to do it. That's what it means to enter into, in part, and live inside his kingdom is when you do what the king says. Because that's what he's like. He's good. And he's not greedy. And he's not proud. And he doesn't abuse. But he wants to use you. I wonder if there might be dozens and dozens of dozens of things that he's going to speak to you about that you're going to do on the 23rd the Jesus way